from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life or who have a relationship with the Baha'i faith. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org. That's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G. Or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with James Williams. Before James became a Baha'i, he was working for a social agency promoting race unity. After becoming a Baha'i, James branched out into a multitude of endeavors, one of them being the sole producer of a local TV news program called The World Today in Roanoke, Virginia. I started the interview by asking James where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. I was born in Pennsylvania, across the river from Pittsburgh. Pennsylvania is that home that you always see when at certain times you close your eyes and you have childhood memories. So Pennsylvania is that place for me. I grew up in a family of clergy, Christian clergy, Baptist denomination. My father was a minister. My grandfather was a minister. My great-grandfather was a minister. He was Methodist in Alabama. My grandfather's church was in Pittsburgh. He pastored that about 40 years before he died. So there was moving around for me and my siblings, one brother, two sisters. From there, we moved, well, my father moved us to Newcastle, which is further west in Pennsylvania, a small town named Newcastle. How old were you then? I was in my early formative years, still a child, young child, four, five, or six. I don't remember the exact age. But I started my first grade of school there mm-hmm. and continued into um, the first year of high school there while living there. My father's church, however, was in Ohio, so every Sunday we would travel to a community uh, east of Cleveland, where his church was. About how far of a drive was that for you? Oh, that would be about an hour, hour and a half. It was approximately 90 miles. So religion was a big part of your life then growing up? Indeed. At that age, saw myself following in my father's and grandfather's footsteps. I was focused on becoming a minister myself, even practiced a few sermons. <laughs> <laughs> How old were you when you did your first sermon? Oh, I was still younger than, than eight, or yeah, eight, mm-hmm. nine, something like that. The area where we lived was on the outskirts, so... Had a lot of room to play, about 20 acres. There was a barn and two-car garage detached. 
So my brother-in-law and I would always play, and, and I would get them together occasionally to practice my sermons. And what was school like for you? I was considered, in one area of my schooling, you know, somewhat advanced, in that the one-room schoolhouse that we attended before the new school was built, the teacher would stand me in front of higher grades so I could read for them. So I had an excitement for learning, questions, questions, and all those kinds of things. Until the specter, the evil of racism, entered my awareness, even in Pennsylvania. And when was that, James? I was still, say, in the fifth grade, sixth grade. The older boys began using the N-word, and my very best friend at that time, who lived about 300 yards away, uh, who would play with me all the time and everything. Suddenly, one day, he turned against me. <laughs> and I still chalk that up to his older brothers. He was being educated about the realities of society. How integrated was your school that you went to? It was, I would say, almost 90% of European descent. I am of African descent. How would you characterize your school life? Well, it wasn't just racism. Uh, looking back, which is somewhat unfair to do, you know, with the eyes I have today, or even uh, 10 years ago, but looking back, I was confused. I became confused, hurt, bewildered. My father had to even carry a pistol, or he chose to do that. To protect his family, I was observing, and while trying to participate in the racial dynamics, because there was fear, apprehension, older people knew their place, but my father really rebelled against that. He refused to be assigned a place in society. You could say that we were raised with that kind of perception of ourselves, yet it didn't help us, because eventually he took a church in Virginia, and when he told us that he was moving us to a city called Lynchburg, Virginia, oh. which was during the 60s, the height of civil unrest, racial unrest, we were frightened. Moreover, we were moving out of a so-called integrated situation into a totally segregated experience, social experience, which I can say really affected me. My grades plummeted. I was totally disoriented. Still asking questions. Why? What's going on? And I carried those, that need for questions and intellectual unrest through to my adult years. You've all read the books. Everybody's read the books. I don't have to repeat it. I'm no one special in that regard. I just did not fit. I could not fit in. Even with your own African-American community? Well, that's correct. 
because the African-American community itself is diverse, so it's not monolithic in its thinking. The young people during that time had developed a, that had grew up in a segregated experience, had developed, you could say, a sense of ease or adjustment, accommodation that I could not acquire. I just couldn't. Later in life, I became an activist, a social activist, but not radical. I just had to experience the attempting the process of social change. It was during that period that I, a friend in the community handed me a thin pamphlet about the Baha'i faith. Now, how old were you at this time, James? I was about 25. Okay, but before you get there, what did you do after you finished high school? Well, this was the Vietnam era. I was drafted into the Army, and I said no, because I watched Cronkite and saw the body count. So I went down and joined the Air Force for four years. <laughs> they let me stay in the Air Force. So four years of my life were in the military. Orders for Vietnam were suddenly changed somehow, and instead I was sent to Alaska. But because of my grades, I got to shoot. Well, I was put into uh, one of the high-skill trades in the military, and that was working in the operating rooms. And I got to choose my base, which I chose Andrews, where the Air Force One is based. And I could visit my family in Lynchburg by bus. Then I received orders to Vietnam. I was the only black person uh, working in the operating room. Sad to say, I didn't stay long. But the orders were changed to Fairbanks, Alaska, and so I flew up there. They said I was too qualified. They called Anchorage, the Air Force Base at Anchorage, which is Elmendorf. They said, yeah, we could use them, send them down. So that's where I met my wife eventually. And so we were married in 1967. Surprisingly, we're still married. <laughs> <laughs> we both attributed to our becoming Baha'i. That was military life after that. But because I had family, you know, including one child, and even though I had a, I was given, offered rather, a full scholarship to the University of Pennsylvania in med school, I chose to work and support my family. I attended colleges, different ones. Finally, went into community activism, I eventually directed an agency, a small agency here in Roanoke, Virginia, called the Neighborhood, Roanoke Neighborhood Alliance. The agency, its mission, goals and objectives, were to bring the diverse racial communities together to work on common problems. And this required different teams of organizers, consistent and patient steps and so forth, we even had for a while our own radio program, and we would on occasion petition city council for things. It was a gradual process. But before that, 
well, what brought me to the city I, where we presently live was my ability to break boards with my hands because I was trying out to be an apartment manager of the worst apartment complex at that time here in the city. So I carried two pistols. <laughs> but in that same apartment complex, I learned everyone was not monolithic. There were teachers living there. They were just passing through, you could say. You know, hard-working people that just needed a relatively decent place to live. My views began to soften and change. Even became the chair of the Job Discrimination Committee for the NAACP, joined other organizations and things like that. So, James, describe for me how your attitude changed from what to what. Well, again, by asking questions, keeping my eyes open, trying not to have a fixed mindset, especially about people, because I did love people. I wanted to see harmony, and uh, I couldn't understand how society has gone wrong. Still, the backdrop being divided neighborhoods and divided churches racially. It didn't make sense. There's one God. There's one Jesus. But, you know, I didn't get away from my religious beliefs, how I grew up. It's just that such beliefs just led to more questions. And so relative to my views softening, I began to look at individuals, began to develop a, uh, not a stratification or a hierarchical view of black society, but they're just good people. People just need a chance. Made many friends. And I still see them every now and then, from 30 years ago. And it's a welcoming experience. But my life was threatened with things like this. So what? I'm here. So you were saying while you were working for this agency, your attitude was softening. While working as the apartment manager, manager of that complex. And I began a path of investigation, if you will which eventually led to me being the executive director of a small agency. I was asked to apply for it and serving on different boards, even appointed by city council to one of its commissions. Even up to that point, uh, I led an interesting life <laughs> relative to human beings. You know, at, at the operating room table, after operating uh, all night on an individual, coming out, sewing up, the individual dies. I've seen death, unnecessary death, and I've seen life. And I've seen or experienced firsthand the uh, barriers between uh, races. No, I didn't march and in civil rights marches. I didn't do that because that was during the 60s. No, I didn't scream and shout. 
I was looking for something else because I saw both the effectiveness and the ineffectiveness, the inappropriateness at times of confrontational politics and so forth. This is all before becoming a Baha'i. No, no, getting that pamphlet put in my hand. I was in a newspaper office, an office where the owners had just become Baha'i themselves. They agreed to walk on this path. And I walked in with a submission for the newspaper. It's a small circulation newspaper, the only, you would say, black newspaper for the Southwest, Virginia. And I had a submission, and as I was uh, leaving, this brand-new Baha'i handed me a pamphlet and, and said, James, this might interest you. Now, did he know you, James? <laughs> it was she. Did she know you? Yes, because I was, well, I guess somewhat unknown in the city at that time. And I had been there before at other times, on other occasions. And so I took it home and I read it. It was a very thin pamphlet. And I expressed out loud that this has the ring of truth. Now, why would I say that? I still don't know. Because I read so many things, so many doctrines and philosophies, and because of my quote-unquote activism, I even had as friends different ministers from different denominations, both black and white. So why I said that, I don't know. Just that thin pamphlet, I guess I was still looking for God, looking for His answers at that point. How were your attitudes toward religion evolving from the point that you were considering becoming a minister growing up to the point where you opened this pamphlet and read it? That's a very good question. It's a significant question because... Before my now wife and I married, I said, now, how do you feel about being a minister's wife? Because I think that this is who I am. That was in 1967. But after getting in the community and seeing the effects, or maybe you could say lack thereof, of religion, I found myself turning away, and I was more about looking for other kinds of answers because I didn't think at that time that there were any options. Where is God, essentially? That was my question. I just didn't know. So I was working with the man-made alternatives, you could say that's it. I was not focused on the return of Jesus because nobody else was. And I wasn't focused on a world vision. That was unheard of. My vision was narrow, focused on the poor, 
and in the predominantly black community. So I had no such awareness or even any imaginary thoughts about a peaceful society. I grew up in conflict. I expected conflict to be the norm for future generations. I expected to raise my children in conflict. So returning to your story, you received the pamphlet. And what Mm -hmm. what was your reaction to the pamphlet? I said, I have to investigate. So I inquired about it. I went back there to... uh, Her name's Claudia, Claudia Whitworth, and her husband, now deceased. And found out that there were some meetings. So I attended the meetings. What I heard was inspiring to me. So I started purchasing books because I wanted to read. I wanted to see what this thing was myself. But I knew there was something kept telling me, don't evaluate this by the people. Go to the source. So I did a lot of reading. And I was not a praying person back then. Not at all. Because why should I believe in prayer? Uh, You know, maybe just the common utterances that people would say or, you know, our father. and I prayed what I knew. Nothing, nothing compared to the depth, the depth, the soul depth of prayers that Baha'is have. Nothing like that. James, when you say the prayers that Baha'is have, can you explain that a little bit? When I became aware that Baha'is had prayer books. Of course, I bought one. And even then, you know, it was explained to me that these prayers were prayers given to us by Baha'u'llah, by the Bab, and by Abdul Baha. And and these folks are the central figures of the, the Baha'i The central faith. figures of the Baha'i faith. When Baha'u'llah talks about veils that have to be lifted from our own eyes, I know exactly what it means because I experienced the lifting of such veils, veils of understanding. You could say that only after becoming a Baha'i did I really learn how to pray, really learn why these revealed prayers prayers from the manifestations of God, Baha'u'llah and the Bab especially, have such power, power that, that no human-sourced prayer can match. Now, James, you use the term manifestation of God. What do you mean by that? Manifestation of God is one like Moses, one like Jesus that mirrored exactly the power and attributes of God to man. The relationship between God and man has always been, since the dawn of human consciousness, it's between or through the manifestations of God that are sent to us. 
God is unknowable. God is unthinkable, unreachable, incomprehensible. All of those kinds of adjectives. And therefore, <laughs> because he is merciful and loving, he sends these special ones, these holy ones, these still indescribable ones, to man to teach us that there is a God and to teach us his ways and to teach us his will for us. And they are indeed spiritual in nature. We can't describe it. We cannot comprehend. I tell Christians that, well, maybe you can, but I can't comprehend His Holiness Jesus. Whenever I encounter Jews, I say the same about His Holiness Moses. They are far, far greater than the holy books describe. They cannot be put into proper words. It's Baha'u'llah who has taught me this. He has lifted them up, each and every one of them. So now I can honestly say that as a Baha'i, I love Jesus more than I did sitting in the church pews. The teachings of Baha'u'llah are so profound and beautiful about him and about every manifestation of God. Who they are, and who they are not. Without them, I dare say, man would be extinct by now. But that's not man's destiny. We were created for a reason. And we've been progressively, continually, pulled towards, ever forward, towards a greater destiny, even now, even today. Which is why Baha'u'llah came and suffered. So you were talking about the power of these prayers by the Bab and Baha'u'llah. Oh, I was just learning how to pray, the value of prayer. Praying the prayers lovingly given us by the central figures of our faith. Because the only prayer that I knew was the one that Jesus had gave. You know, the Lord's Prayer. I knew it was a divinely given prayer. Now we have so many given to mankind. So I was just learning to pray, and I, but I lost my prayer book. I honestly turned the house upside down looking for it. Then one night I just went to bed, and suddenly, now this is straight up, suddenly a voice said, your prayer book is in your blue suit coat pocket hanging inside your closet. I jumped out of bed, went right to it. <laughs> Obviously, if someone wanted me to continue learning how to pray, how to commune with God, with the most beautiful words, I say that these prayers actually allow our very soul to commune with God. They're not mind prayers or, or intellectual prayers. They allow our souls to speak. Yeah, these prayers make me weep. Not all of them, but some of them. Anyway. So, James, why don't you share with me a prayer that makes you weep? One of the most beautiful and meaningful 
I'm using beauty as meaning. And it's the prayer that is read at the shrine of Abdu'l-Bahá. Where, where Abdu'l-Bahá is buried? Yes, where he's buried, on Mount Carmel in the Holy Land, Israel. And it has such meaning to me. It has such purpose. It's so real. It has such humility and servitude. This is who Abdu'l-Bahá is. It's his reality, servitude to humanity and to God. Well, maybe you could explain to folks who Abdu'l-Bahá was. Well, I say who Abdu'l-Bahá is because uh, his death only released him. He helps us all, even now. He is Baha'u'llah's eldest son, but there was something special about him. Baha'u'llah, in later writings, explained who Abdu'l-Bahá is. At age nine, when Abdu'l-Bahá was still a child, he recognized who Baha'u'llah is. His father. When yeah. those around him, around Baha'u'llah, could not see what this child knew. A child. And the rest of his life was, of course, he went into prison. He followed his father into exile and eventually into that final prison in Akka, Palestine, then, now Israel. And so he went into prison, a young child, prison in exile, a young child, and was released during the uh, Young Turks Revolution, which released all political prisoners. But even by then... As one of Baha'u'llah's enemies said, if there is no other proof of who you are, it's your son, Abdu'l-Bahá. Because the officials, public officials, governmental officials, would come seek his advice. He was known as the father of the poor because he always took care of the poor. He was even knighted by Queen Elizabeth during a ceremony held in Palestine after World War I for feeding the poor, not just the poor, but that uh, entire uh, region because of his wisdom. Like for Christians in the Bible, he stored up the grain and everything because he knew that war was coming. When General Allenby of the British Army was marching into Palestine to recapture it. He knew that the stories about certain radical figures, government figures, trying to kill Abdu'l-Bahá and his family and followers, he knew those stories were true. So he recaptured Palestine. And the first telegram that he sent back to England was, tell the world, Abdu'l-Bahá is safe. And that says that Abdu'l-Bahá was well-known, very well-known, which explains why he was invited by famous poets and dignitaries in the United States to come over and be the keynote speaker at a major peace conference being held. I think it was upstate New York or someplace, I can't remember where. They even sent tickets 
for him to sail on the maiden voyage of the Titanic. Abdu'l-Bahá, being who he was, sent them back, said, sell them and give the money to the poor. And he chose instead to sail on a slower steamer. So he was well known. The newspapers of that day in this country and in Canada carried his talks. And he had received so many invitations to speak, synagogues, churches, universities, conferences, and so forth. He couldn't handle all of them. But he traveled from the East Coast to the West Coast and back, speaking, talking. He gave a major speech at Stanford University. The newspaper for that city printed that speech in its entirety. I happen to have a copy of it, of the newspaper. Howard University, he spoke about the equality, the oneness of man, the equality of men and women. Everything, every teaching that his father, Baha'u'llah, brought to humanity, he expounded on fearlessly. And it's said that Congress adjourned when he first arrived in Washington, D.C. So many, he was invited to so many parties and so forth, but he came regally, humbly. He's indescribable. Mm-hmm. Books have been written about him. What happened after you accepted the Baha'i faith, James? Relative to my family my siblings, my parents, my grandparents, and so forth. (laughs) What do you expect? Black sheep, cult, (laughs) follower, you're blind, you are going to hell. And my wife, who was not a Baha'i, was stimulated to investigate what it was. Because she tells everybody she began to see a change in me. Now, I don't know what kind of change, but something was happening. Frankly, it's still happening. This is an ongoing process. And as far as my locations, (laughs) I had to give up other religious aspirations or thoughts. My grandfather gave me his church in Pittsburgh if I would just give this Baha'i thing up. Now, at that time, it had 3,000 members, two or three, I can't remember which is significant. But I already knew that God has spoken once again to humanity, without any doubt. This is the reality for all of mankind. So I went into uh, business. I resigned as executive director of that agency. I saw, in a sociological sense, that the barriers between blacks and whites will always be there using present contemporary thinking and processes and and methodologies. There will always be a barrier. And I didn't want to draw a paycheck if I knew that the objectives of that agency were unrealistic. And I could not teach the Baha'i faith because that would be wrong. I was hired to carry that agency forward relative to its mission. 
So I resigned. They asked me to be chairman of the board. I, I did that for a year. But I said, well, I've got to go feed my family now. So how did you do that, James? It was a slow process. Back in 78, mm-hmm. 1978, uh, another Baha'i asked me if I wanted to learn computers. I said, sure. I would only get paid for the work I did. Sure. You know, with his help, I, I could say um, almost self-taught. So I did contract work, designing software. I was very good at it. And also coding it in holding hands, the hands of the people that I work for, contract work. You could say I got a little bored, because that's what I told him. So I wrote a proposal along with a college professor for a certain kind of television program. And this is before CNN. He took a job out of town, another professorship. So I was the sole executive producer of The World Today, where I would call, invite people from the uh, State Department, the United Nations, the back then the PLO, <laughs> World Bank. In other words, to come to Roanoke, fly to Roanoke, we pay the expenses, do a tape program, TV program. It was the second most popular program produced locally, even though it was a monthly or maybe twice monthly, up against weekly programs. After that, we started a business right across the street from Virginia Tech University. And this is really before PCs became popular. We would do their papers for them in the style and format of their uh, individual professors. What The co-owner was a Baha'i who could type up to 180 words a minute. We had to put her behind a screen because she looked like a duck when she was doing it. <laughs> <laughs> With her arms, elbows stretched out horizontally and everything. I was doing contract work, again, computers, so forth. But I retired from computers. I hate machines. Interesting. I just wanted to please people. So what are you doing now, James? I'm retired, and I do writing and compiling. Oh, mm-hmm. while doing that also, uh, I co-authored, along with Dr. William Roberts and uh, Ted Jefferson. I call him Sir Ted, who's now deceased. He lived in California, Baha'i. Uh, booklet on the Black Men's Baha'i Gathering. Maybe you could explain what that is to folks. This gathering that was started by an idea of Dr. Roberts, who's now treasurer, national treasurer, national Baha'i community. And he saw this disunity among black men. He was a well-known psychologist. He even, at that time, appeared on some of the talk shows, nationally syndicated talk shows, about his theories and so forth. But he saw black men being afraid to be seen with each other in the presence of white Baha'is. Now, this is uh, nothing new to black men, because <laughs> culturally, in terms of identity, this is the people that changed its own name how many times? Since slavery, 
white-collared, Negro. And then black didn't come in until the 60s. African-American or Afro-American. Black people historically have suffered in such deeply profound ways that, you know, it's identity. The African identity it brought to these shores was conditioned out. The history of slavery. No, you know, scholars would give the intellectual thing, but the emotional thing, the emotional outcome, the emotional consequence was self-hatred. That's just one. So many things. And now, because of this gathering, it's not an organization. It's not anything but a gathering. It started out what, as once a year where black men from the United States, those who were invited, would come and be with each other for just a few days. What it did was, through prayers and reading of the guidance and studying the guidance and the words, through fellowship, eating together, being in one place together for the first time, in our lives, we slowly, year after year, began to realize that God loves us because of who we are. No, I didn't say that right. He loves us. He just loves us. We can cast aside the, the social identities. We're like every other human being. The social identities that come from being white, for example, or Russian, Chinese, are secondary. There's something within every human being that no previous religion has touched. And this revelation was so powerful, it began to transform the people at the bottom, the very bottom of the social rung. But I attribute, and I've told Dr. Roberts this, I attribute his inviting me to that very first gathering of 12 men total. That was a turning point in my spiritual life because up to that point, I thought in order to be a Baha'i, I had to be like the majority, the white Baha'is. No, I can be me. I can be me. And this is a lesson about the reality of the human race that this faith has come to, to give. It's, it's, it's already within us, the things that we need to be human. How can you describe a spiritual phenomena? And the teaching of Baha'u'llah, of course, is true, but to understand it, you have to experience it. We are primarily spiritual beings, not physical beings. And the emphasis since time immemorial has been on the physical. The physical. One's station in life, one's role based on nobility or poverty, merchant or seaman, and so on. Skin color. In India, you still have the untouchables. In this country, you know, what 
racism has done to this society is still not completely understood. All that is now being addressed. The, the Native Americans, the, the Indians, they're beginning to understand. Just like I'm beginning to understand that there's more to this supreme revelation of God than what I previously knew. Much, much more. He came to transform all of human society. Do you know how many levels that is? <laughs> and only God can do that. <laughs> That's all I do. <laughs> I don't need to say anymore. Yeah. Well, James, I want to thank you so much for sharing your story. Well, thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with James Williams, a Baha'i now living in Virginia. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. When righteousness is weak and faints, and unrighteousness exalts in pride, then my spirit arises on earth. For the salvation of those who are good, for the destruction of evil in men, for the fulfillment of the kingdom of righteousness, I come to this world. From age to age. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice, from henceforth, even forever. of the religion of the Arabian and the overthrow of the kingdom of Iran and the degradation of the followers of my religion. A descendant of the Iranian kings will be raised up as a prophet.
not the first Buddha who came upon earth, nor shall I be the last. In due time, another Buddha will arise in the world, a holy one, a supremely enlightened one, endowed with wisdom and conduct, auspicious, knowing the universe, an incomparable leader of men, a master of angels and mortals. He will reveal to you the same eternal truths which I have taught you. He will preach his religion, glorious at the goal, in the spirit and in the letter. He will proclaim a religious life, holy, perfect, and pure, such as I now proclaim. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, God says, God is the light of the heavens and the earth. His light is like a niche in which is a lamp, the lamp encased in glass, the glass as it were a brilliant star, lit from a blessed tree, an olive, of neither the east nor of the west, whose oil is beginning to burst into light, though no fire has touched it. Light upon light, God guideth whomsoever he willeth to his light, and of all things God is knowing. Baha'u'llah, what hast thou done? Beneath the canopy of your presence, we here assembled acknowledge with our lives the truth you proclaimed. 
Oh, Baha'u'llah, how long we have waited. Oh, Baha'u'llah, by your grace we behold you, Prince of Peace, Ancient of Days, O Promised One of all ages, O Baha'u'llah, what hast thou done? from the fetters of this world. Free 
loose thy soul from the prison of self. chance, for it will come to thee no more. No more. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM. Your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.